Well, it is great to be with you guys this morning. I uh, was saying to the other campus at Cheltenham that it's been about two years in the making. I've known Rob now for a couple of years and we've just been working to try and find a time that would um, fit to come down and speak with you guys. And, and it feels right, it feels great to be here. And this morning is the last message in that chapter. I think we did last night in Cheltenham this morning and then now here. And so thank you for coming on this journey. Thank you for being open to hearing about the persecuted church. I work for an organisation called Open Doors and we've been going for around 60 years now. Started by a guy called Brother Andrew. He wrote a book called God's Smuggler, which uh, many people seem to have read. And we work with what's called the persecuted church. And the best way to describe that is that wherever Christianity kind of bumps heads with other religions, cultures, governments, and there's a fallout, we work with the local church there to equip them to be the hands and feet of Christ to their communities. And so one of the ways I say is that we are an organisation that's aimed at the survival of the church in order to fulfil the Great Commission in some of the most conflicted countries on the planet. And it is an absolute privilege and honour to be part of that. This morning what I want to do is give you, rather than a presentation, I guess, around the ministry, I want to give you a little bit of a personal journey of mine. And my hope is that as we outwork this journey, you'll get an idea of just how the persecuted church has a habit and tendency of turning everything you hold dear upside down. We're working with a family in Syria. Edwin and Rana, they're pastors. They live in a building in Aleppo, one of the uh, their, their apartment block is one of the only buildings with a roof left on it. And what they did was they decided to turn their one-bedroom unit into a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week church. In fact, Rana and the kids, they now sleep in the hallway so the bedroom can be used for a 24-hour day ministry centre. Anyone, any faith, any time can come and be given food if they have it, prayer, whatever they need. A good friend of mine was sitting with them and they said, surely this is a massive tax on your family, a huge burden. And they said, yeah, it is, but we are the church of Jesus Christ. We should be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I come from a church in Sydney that over Christmas, we more than often close down because we think numbers will dwindle because most people are on holidays. As Edward and Rana sat with my friend, they told him about a story and a journey they took together. And Rana said, I remember having a dream and I felt the Lord say to me, you see they have six and seven year old girls, and she said, I felt the Lord say to me one day, would you be willing to give your life for me? And she said, as I sat with the Lord and prayed about it, it took a few days, but ultimately I came to the conclusion that yes, I'd be willing to lay my life down for you. She said, the next dream was harder because I felt the Lord ask me, would you be willing to give your husband's life for me? And she said, so speaking with my husband, we wrestled with it, we prayed about it, it took about a week, but ultimately we came to the decision that yes, we'd be willing to lay our lives down for you. And she said, the third dream, that was the hardest. Because she said, I felt the Lord say, would you be willing to give your girls life for me? She said, my husband and I, we prayed about it for three weeks. 
And ultimately, we came to the decision that, yes, would be willing to lay their lives down for you. And as they sat with my friend, they took the girls to the front door of their apartment and they stood them there and they said, girls, one day men with guns and knives are going to come to this door. They're going to hurt mum and dad and they will make you watch. When they're finished with mum and dad, they're going to turn to you and they're going to ask you two questions and you must answer the following. Number one is that we love Jesus. And number two is we forgive you. And they said, on that day, those men are going to hurt you too. But we'll be in paradise together. The conversation went back to the living room and there's a lounge and a whiteboard in the living room and and the girls began to draw on the whiteboard and it got to the point where my friend had to interrupt the conversation with Edward and Rana and say, girls, can you tell me about your picture? You see, they were drawing this kind of cityscape and in the foreground were these buildings and sort of destruction and dead bodies and blood and all these kind of crazy things. And the girls looked at my friend and said, yeah, well, that's Syria. And he says, yeah, but, but what's this like yellow text or all this, this yellow marker and rain pouring down? And they looked at my friend and they said, that's the love of God raining down over Syria and her people. Six and seven-year-old girls who had just been told what would likely befall them. They have the courage and the passion and the trust in Christ to say that is the love of God raining down over Syria and her people. Real life, real faith, real sacrifice. And so this morning, that's what we want to look at. We're going to look at sacrifice. And it's a faith that involves the giving up of something valued. It could be safety, comfort, rights, health, well-being, family, all for the sake of Jesus. And in many ways, it is the foundation to our faith. In Romans 8.28, we read, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. It's one of those famous verses, the Bible, that if you're like me, it's kind of helped me form this idea of what I'd signed up to by following this guy called Jesus. It's almost as though we build this contract of faith based off between ourselves and God based off these several positive, uplifting promises that we find in the Bible. But it was a journey that I took last year that changed all of that for me. You see, 2015 was a pretty tough year for me. I stepped into the role of CEO officially January 1, 2015, and everything seemed to turn pear-shaped from there. I remember being in Coffs Harbour in northern New South Wales at Christmas and we go up there semi-regularly for holidays. And I thought to myself, on New Year's Eve, come January 1, I'm going to wake up early, I'm going to get out there, I'm going to spend time with the Lord, I'm going to work on my spiritual disciplines because I am really focused on ensuring that I lead this ministry right. Anyway, New Year's Eve, a, a round of gastro hit our family and over the next two weeks, I lost 10 kilos. In February, I lost $30,000 to a credit card scam through a small business that I owned. In November, I was diagnosed with what's called parathyroid disease and two weeks later in hospital, with the risk being that the surgeon said, if you're in public speaking, you don't want this surgery. Because to get this thing out of my throat or my neck that they believe was cancer, they said to get to it. We have to dissect your vocal cord nerve. And the risk is that in 20% of operations, people will lose their voice permanently forever. 
If you're in public speaking, you don't want this. Two days after surgery, I suffered a bulging disc in my back and was bedridden for another week. 2015 was a year with consistent sickness in our household and consistently big problems. Breakdown of relationships in our wider family. But you know what? It was made even worse by this selfish expectation I have of Jesus because my contract with him had basically conformed Jesus to what I could only describe as a mix between Superman and Santa Claus. This kind of unseen vending machine in the sky whereby I do my best to live a Christian life and in return, he provides me with safe passage and all the good things I've ever wanted. I know it sounds crass and it may even sound over the top, but I promise you, it's how my faith worked. I spent years thinking and in some cases being told that verses like Romans 8.28, they tell me that because I'm a follower of Jesus, my life should be full of good things because he wants good for me. However, in the last year, I've also spent time in refugee camps with Christians displaced by ISIS, heard story after story of good things being taken from great people. I've met people who tell me how they've been forced to flee their homes by ISIS and they've lost everything, all their property, all their worth, everything. And I promise you, in places like Iraq, when they say everything, they mean everything. Because in Iraq, there's no trust in the banking system. So what you do is you keep all your money at home. Every time you get paid, it goes at home in cash. Superannuation, you name it. There's nothing like that. And so when ISIS come and they give you hours to flee, you're leaving behind everything. I met one grandfather who was so terrified, all he had time to grab was a pillow. They came in the middle of the night, he had no time to get shoes. He literally just grabbed a pillow and ran. And they would say things like this, and I quote, now I know Jesus. Not like before though, I was happy back then. I had more money, a big house, I was a rich man, but no love. Listen to this. ISIS was a gift from God because now I know the love of God more than ever before or a family that I met displaced and on the move for 10 years. 10 years. What were you doing in 2006? I was 25 and only just married. They've been on the move for 10 years. And I remember sitting opposite them in their little refugee camp kind of caravan. And I said to them, or a friend of mine said to them, and what has this done for your faith? And almost with disdain, they just went, our faith? They said, people always ask us, where was God when we were displaced? But we witness the hand of God with us all the time. If we don't focus our mind on what we lost, but we focus it on God and what he's done for us. As I thought through this and I married it with Romans 8.28, I realised I was missing one crucial part to the verse because it tells me that God works all things, not all good things, which means that God uses the good things and the bad things, the time of harvest and the moment of arid dryness and sacrifice in our lives for good. And looking back, I see the greatest times of growth in my life, leadership and faith, they came from the moments of sacrifice, the moments of testing, and it's had a great ramification on my marriage, 
on my leadership and on my life. This morning, I want to have a brief look at the role sacrifices played in the foundational elements of our faith because in so many ways, persecution and sacrifice, it's part of the DNA of the church and it has been from the beginning. The question today is, is it still part of our DNA? A good friend of mine, Nick Ripkin, wrote a book called The Insanity of God and he says the following, I'm not sure I've ever heard it said out loud, but I also picked up the idea that obedience to God's call would result in a life of safety and security. Obedience, it was implied, would lead to effective ministry and measurable results and even success. The safest place to be, I was told, more than once is right in the centre of God's will. And that sounded both true and reassuring. I admit, however, my surprise when many years later I found myself living a life that was neither safe nor secure. I was stunned when, despite what I considered to be a life of sacrificial obedience, I could point to very little in my ministry that was effective. There were simply no results to measure, and success was a word that I would never have used to describe what I've done. You see, the thing is that unless we address and wrestle with these things now, it will lead to what I call the crisis of faith, where we begin to question God on things like, well, do you in fact promise Safety. Do things always work out for those who are obedient? Isn't it possible to love God and pretty much keep living the life I've been living? And would God really allow people who love Him to fail? What's funny is they sound like big questions. But the Bible is crystal clear on the cost of following Christ. In 2 Corinthians... Chapter 11, and starting in verse 23, it's Paul speaking, and it tells me and gives me insight into the cost of following Jesus for this guy. You see, he says, are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I've worked harder. I've been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number. I've faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've travelled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and I've often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without any or enough clothing to keep me warm. And then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? And who is led astray and I do not burn with anger? You see, what I love is that he goes on to saying 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 8, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness, so now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. Verse 10, that's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know how many times I've also responded like this, Lord, help, but God simply says, my grace is all you need. 
Real life. Real faith. Real sacrifice. I want to have a quick look today at the role sacrifice has played in both the church and the lives of individual. And if we start by looking at the church, a quick overview of Acts gives us a pretty good insight into that. You see, Acts 1, we have the ascension of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes. Acts 2, believers form a community. It's essentially the birth of the church. Acts 3, miracles and preaching. Acts 4, opposition comes. It's where the reality of the cost in following Jesus surfaces and the need for sacrifice is realised. Believers pray for courage, more healings, more miracles. Acts 5, more opposition. Acts 6, words begin to damage. Stephen stands up and he's killed for his courage. Acts 8, persecution comes and the sacrifice scatters believers. Acts 11, the gospel spreads and the Great Commission begins. Have you ever noticed that God used Saul to build the church as well as Paul? In fact, he used Saul to breathe life into the Great Commission. You see, so it seems as though the model initially looks something like this. Before Paul or before Saul started persecuting the church, in Acts, it was they got the Great Commission. They went into this kind of comfortable living. Sounds pretty similar, right? Persecution came, then the action. And so when Saul began persecuting believers, it kind of went great commission, persecution and sacrifice, action. And in so many ways, the model for the Middle East is still that. A great commission, persecution, sacrifice, and in the middle of that, an action and a call to shine as brightly as they can for Christ. I remember being in Egypt we flew in the day of the presidential elections. The Muslim Brotherhood had been removed from power. 300 of them sentenced to death and 150 of them on the run. Needless to say, it was a pretty stressful time for the church in Egypt. As we're driving to worship in a church called Qasr al-Bara, the biggest evangelical church in the Middle East, there's sort of Black Hawk helicopters flying around, hovering low over crowds at polling booths. It was crazy. And as we worshipped in this church right off Tahir Square, I remember the pastor got up and started praying over his nation and talking about the vision for his church. And it was this. He stood on the platform and he says, if every Egyptian Christian chose to reconcile one person to Christ per year for the next 13 years, he says, we will reconcile 8 billion people to Jesus. And he looked at the congregation and he said, so who is your one person? Man, what a vision. Because I promise you, in a place like Egypt, you get that one person wrong and it could cost you everything. And so if in so many ways the foundational church growth model looks like that, what does it look like for us in the West? And is the idea of persecution and sacrifice still part of it? As I thought through this in light of my own faith, I realised the image that I leave people with when I speak about Jesus and the gospel, it must look and sound something like this. Safety, security, growth. In my best intentioned efforts to make Jesus cool and appealing, I've fallen victim to what I call the natural progression of cool, which is essentially Jesus is cool, cool things are good, therefore Jesus is good. And you can tell this by the way I walk, the way I talk, the way I look, the way I speak. You see, why wouldn't you want to follow this guy called Jesus? Just look at my life. 
Both my vocalisation and my outward appearance give people the impression that Jesus is this smiling, happy guy that gives you absolutely everything but calls you to nothing. I've completely removed the idea of commission, sacrifice and action from my faith. It's almost as though I take all the verses of health, the promises of God, well-being and blessing and I hold them dear. But the idea of picking up my cross daily, man, I'll leave that for someone else. And the fallout for this, from this is that in those moments when adversity comes, and I promise you, it will come. We're left questioning God's faithfulness and more often than not, unable to answer the question to why these things are happening in our lives and why, if God is love, he would allow them to happen. And please don't hear me wrong in this. I think as a body of believers, we're brilliant at telling our friends and family to lean on Jesus in the moments of trial in our lives. I'm just mindful that more often than not, our language outside of those moments is not congruent with a model of suffering, sacrifice and growth. And for me, this scary reality became known last year. I remember laying on the bed, waiting to be wheeled in for my operation. I'm talking to the anesthesiologist and every person I could about Christ, sharing the gospel with them, talking about the work we do in Iraq and basically hoping that they would catch it. And then I remember two days later when my back went, the first thing I questioned, it's God's faithfulness. Because I'm there going, man, I did right by you. Why won't you do right by me? I'm there laying on my bed, sharing the gospel, doing everything I could to serve you, Lord. And you know what? After all of this stuff I've walked through with my neck and cancer and everything else, now my back has to go? I did right by you. Why won't you do right by me? I assure you, this was a scary, a disappointing and a shallow moment in my faith. I remember being in China and meeting with the underground church and secret believers and I was talking to a 60-year-old brother and I said to him, can I pray for you? And he says to me, I look at the Australian church as a prophetic example of what happens when faith becomes free. He says the value of Jesus drops. He says, I want you to pray that persecution never leaves China. And I said, brother, would you pray for me? He says, yeah. I pray you'd be persecuted. Another well-known secret believer in China, Li Qin, says, you see, persecution is the enemy's second best strategy. His best is materialism. He says, picture this, the enemy has a barrel of a gun pressed towards your temple and he says, renounce Christ or I'll pull the trigger. He says, eight times out of 10, in that moment, you will find the courage not to deny Christ and the trigger will be pulled. But he says, now picture this, the enemy takes you to a warehouse and he says, fine then, you can have it all, have it your way. I'm gonna give you Christ sitting on a throne, but I'm gonna give you all the blessings of Christianity that come with it. A big house, car, TVs, money, fame, food, chocolate, whatever it is. And Lee Chin says, you know what? It doesn't take long before you get so focused on playing in the blessings that you don't even realise that Jesus Christ has left the building. And he says that is the problem with materialism and greed. 
I remember sitting in Iraq and talking with a friend and he says to me, Mike, which do you think is a greater danger to our faith, ISIS or an iPhone? And he said, because one of them is driving people to God and one of them is drawing people away from him. Because it's the subtlety of distraction that is suffocating our faith. And now if we move on from looking at the church corporately and look at the role sacrifice should play in our own life, we need only look at the interactions Jesus had with people. I mean, how many of his direct encounters involved people sacrificing or giving up something in pursuit of him? I guess one of the best ways to articulate it is that we so often look at suffering as an absence of God. Whereas the word tells you it's a drawing near of God and the persecuted church, they live this and they know this. In Matthew 4, we have the calling of the first disciples who the word says left their boats behind, not to mention their careers, their families, etc. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first recording teaching and one of the most radical things you'll ever hear. Have you ever noticed that the concept of persecution is the only beatitude that Jesus reiterates? Matthew 8, the man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him, made a bold statement, if you are willing, you can heal me. His sacrifice was to self and looking silly in front of others. And I promise you, that is a lot harder than it may sound. Matthew 8, the faith of a Roman soldier who said, there's no need to come back to my house. Just say the word. Again, he sacrificed himself and trusted God. Matthew 8, 18, Jesus speaks about the cost of following him, including saying, the son of man has no place to lay his head and telling one of his disciples not to bother going home to bury his father. And we could just go on and on and on. But now jump forward 2,000 years and how are these kind of things playing out today? Are people still giving up everything to follow him? We're working in a country called Eritrea. It's in the Horn of Africa. It's probably the fourth country on the planet hardest to follow Christ. There's a guy by the name of Elihu there. He worked for the military. He was a believer and one day on his posting, he went to church. While he was at church, the military came and overthrew the church. They grabbed him, held him without charge. And now in Eritrea, the prison cells aren't like our prisons. In fact, they're either shipping containers, metal shipping containers, or they're underground. They dig a 70 centimetre round hole and they excavate a four by four metre cell underneath and then they put you in the earth. Elihu got put down one of those holes without charge for three years. He said one of the only ways he survived was that when he was given parchment and paper, he would write all the song lyrics he knew, all the Bible verses he knew, and that was what got him through. But the natural process is, is that when the guards find those, they beat you. And he says one of the worst times was when they shackled him and they said they took him topside. And he says they left me in the sun shackled for 30 days. And in his words, he says the ground was like a cooking plate. All the skin on his head is burnt. All his hands are burnt where the shackles were around his wrists. And he says, but the worst was for a five-day period. At midday, they would roll me on my back and for one hour force me to have my eyes open looking at the sun. He essentially lost his vision because of it. 
When they'd finished with that, they went and dug a 70 centimetre round, five feet deep hole. They grabbed Elihu and they put him in it. They left him standing in that hole for five months. He stood for five months. When we talked with him, we said to him, Elihu, what would you say to your captors? And his response is something I will never forget. Because listen to this. But I would say it's easy to sign a piece of paper and free yourself. You see, in Eritrea, all you've got to do is sign a piece of paper saying you won't worship or share Jesus and you can go. I would say it's easy to sign a piece of paper and free yourself. But what's the meaning of following Jesus Christ? You cannot just follow him in the peaceful and good times. You have to follow him in difficult and hard times too. There were times in the Bible when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego could have just kneeled down, but they had a Lord to follow. They did not submit to Nebuchadnezzar who told them to renounce their faith. They could have just obeyed and left without any problems. But they had gone all the way through the problems and sufferings. God never abandoned them. Listen to this. Jesus Christ died and suffered for us. So why should I not do the same for him? Three years underground, five months in a hole, 30 days in the sun. And that's his response. Two days in one of the best hospitals on the planet just because of the country we're in. Two days is all it took me to begin questioning God's faithfulness. You see, following Jesus, it comes with a sacrifice. It requires obedience, trust, and an assurance that Jesus Christ is the saviour of the world. I'm not saying you're not allowed good things when following Jesus. What I'm saying is that we're called to be bold, courageous, and committed. Jesus isn't a mix between Superman and Santa Claus. And by following him, we don't get a life full of blessing and fruit. We get a great commission. It involves sacrifice, hardship, and a call to shine as brightly for him as we can. And sometimes, I promise you, that story, it is not going to end the way we want it to. But ultimately, God is always faithful. Let us pray. Loving God, we come before you this morning and just thank you that you are a creator God who sent your son, fully God and fully man, to walk this earth, to live a blameless and sin-free life, to die a brutal death that would reconcile the world to him. Lord, I pray and ask for forgiveness for those moments where my contract, our contract, has rendered you and placed you in a box and just said that you are this kind of unseen vending machine in the sky. Lord, forgive us for those moments. Realign our faith and our attitude, our courage and commitment. May me realize that following you, it comes with a cost, but that cost is worth everything. Lord, we pray today that your spirit would rest on this church and this body of believers, that as we leave here, we would be impassioned to be more bold, courageous, and to find that one person in our life. Because serving you, Lord, is not a matter of location, it's a matter of obedience. 
you died and suffered for us. So why would we not do the same for you? Jesus, you are everything. May you be glorified in all we ever do. In your wonderful, most holy and powerful name we pray. Amen.